Hello again, friends, and welcome to Madison Bookbeat, your listener-sponsored community radio home for Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. I'm your host, Stu Levitan. We hit two of the criteria today with Madison native Dennis Punzel, author of the new book, Point, Wisconsin, The Road to a National Title for Kelly Sheffield and the Wisconsin Badgers. It's a book he was largely able to research while at his day job, covering the Badger team for the Wisconsin State Journal since 2013, part of his 37-year career with the State Journal and the Capital Times, following seven years with papers in Green Bay, Stevens Point, and Boise, Idaho. It is a pleasure to welcome to Madison Bookbeat, Dennis Punzel. Oh, pleasure and an honor to join you. Thank you. Wisconsin Volleyball has established itself as one of the country's premier programs, finished this year ranked number five, ranked in the top five in seven of the last 10 seasons, and in the top 12, the other three. Is that a tribute to the program or the coach, or can you really not separate the two? I think it's the two, and, and it it starts with Kelly. Um, you know, all of that has come under Kelly Sheffield. The They've had success in the past. Um, Pete Waite had them in the championship match back in 2000, was it? Um, and But there had been a gradual decline, and that's why there was a coaching change. And he infused new life into a program that he inherited some talent. Pete left him with an a nice uh, stockpile of talent that he, and he added to it and sustained it now over time. I think there originally he wanted to fight that perception that it was a Lauren Carlini program. And that as soon as she was gone, Wisconsin would slip back down to the middle of the big town again, like it had been. And uh, they've sustained it. And even this year, coming off of that championship season and losing the heart of that team, they're right back two points away from going to the final four again. You mentioned that team, the 2021 championship team had this quintet of outstanding seniors. You had a four-time All-American and player of the year in Dana Radke, fellow All-American Sidney Hilly, Lauren Barnes, Grace Loberg, Molly Haggerty, uh, there were just two seniors in the starting lineup, Danielle Hart and Izzy Ashburn. And still this team goes 28 and four, goes 19 and one in the Big Ten, wins the Big Ten for the fourth time in a row, is ranked, I think, number third going into the tournament. At the start of the season, what realistic expectations did Sheffield and the team have for this season? You know, I th- I think he felt and he told me, even though the Big Ten coaches picked Wisconsin to win, he said, well, that they're just doing that to get at me. Um, <laughs> in their hearts, they all knew Nebraska was the favorite. Um, and Ohio State had everybody back from a really good team, and they were right at the top of the conference right until the last two weeks. When Ohio State fell apart those two weeks and Wisconsin – went through and, and toughed it out for those two weeks and, and won the championship with by a three-game margin. They, they won two more conference matches than the team before them with all of those icons, which is, it's pretty amazing. I think if they'd have been top three in the conference starting out, everyone said, that, that, that's pretty good for the year after considering who they lost. 
And to get to the elite eight and lose by two, everyone would have said, yeah, that's pretty good from the start of the year. The problem, you know, once you've won all they've won, when you get within two points, everybody wants more. But I, I think most people would step back and say, that's a pretty remarkable year, all things considered. You, you mentioned those two points. We were both at the field house a couple of Saturdays ago for the regional final between Wisconsin and Pitt. Uh, you were at the press table. I was up in the cheap seats. Badgers are two points away from going to the final four and they lose three points in a row and their season is suddenly over. And as you wrote, last year's tears of joy are replaced by tears of sadness. How did Kelly Sheffield handle the locker room that night after that match? Oh, you know, I'm not down there, but I, you know, you hear the stories and, and he's learned a lot. You can tell an experienced coach, he comes in and you know, it's eaten him alive and you'd never know it. And I think with the team, I, I've heard Danielle Hart talk about what she told the team that she had been there when other captains had told them you're going to win a title even when it hadn't happened here before, because she'd been around for six years. And her line to the those teams, is, or her players who would be coming back, is you're going to win another championship, multiple championships. This program will keep winning. And so it's not – I think Kelly has the maturity that I think all fans should aspire to in dealing with losses, because – and most, I think, Badger fans are really good. That The atmosphere that last weekend at the Fieldhouse was the best I've ever seen anywhere um, for any event, just all along. Um, it was, you know, the, the Cole Center match was pretty special, too, just the volume of people and the way they brought life to the Cole Center. But I thought that last weekend um, – from start to finish, the fans were great. And I, I, just the fact, it shows how far that program is that there's a disappointment when they don't get to the final four. But I think by and large, I think people got over it pretty well. And it also is a reminder that fans can help you, but it, they can't win. They can't score points for you. You know, the, the, they lost to Florida in front of the biggest crowd ever. And they had tremendous support that weekend and, and were pushed to the limit by Penn State and pushed again by Pitt. Um, you, you still have to make the plays. That You know, that Pitt match after the first set, when they were down by, I think, six or seven, and they came back and yeah. won, I thought, okay, that's going to break Pitt. I mean, for Pitt to have been up that much and then lose that first set, this thing is over. And then Pitt comes out, wins the second set. It's like uh-oh, these girls came to play. And, I mean, they both had the heart of a champion. Yeah, and, and the Badgers were fighting uphill the whole night. The fourth set is the only one where they kind of took control and won it the way you would want. Or, or, you know, it doesn't have the same drama, but it was, they had the, that was the only set that they had control of. The first, yeah, there was a tremendous rally to win that. The, the second and third they got in a hole and, and made an effort to come out and they got close, but couldn't catch. And then the fifth, all of a sudden they're down 11 to six and, and I'm on deadline 
and I've got two versions of a story, one where they win, one where they lose, and I'm going back and forth from one to the other throughout the night and adding on, depending on which way it looks like it's going. And just during that last set, I'm, I'm writing on the losing version, and then all of a sudden they're up 12-11, and I'm shifting everything to the winning version, and <laughs> it's back and forth, and and the, the end comes really quickly when it comes, and it, it's, it's a lesson. I remember um, covering the regional in Austin, Texas, by 2016 maybe, when they lost to Florida in the Sweet 16, and they were up, they were behind in the fifth, and then they're up, and then I'm ready to write the winning story, and boom, boom, and it was over and they were done. And, and it's just like that, though, in a, especially that fifth set with 15 points, the end comes really quickly. Um, that happened at, in that Cole Center match, too. It looked like they were going to win the fifth set. And even then it was close. I think it was 13-13, Florida, Florida, point, point. It's over. When it's like Everybody's like, wait, that's it? <laughs> it just seemed like uh, that would go on. I thought that fifth set uh, against Pitt was going to go to extra points. And it would be one of those twenty to eighteen kind of things. When, when you know when it got to when they got to thirteen, it's like okay, you just need one more point, and then you know, and then you're at, you're at match point, and you know, and even if you, and it was just, I think everyone in the building thought, okay, we got this. We're up at thirteen, twelve. We got this. Yeah, and and that just that's volleyball. You know, it 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 starts with a pass and. Uh, it, it, you know, that's the, the flaw that really dragged them down all night was the, their passing was was flawed. And, um, you know, I talked to Kelly the other day about that, that it just wasn't good enough. Uh, individually and as a system, their passing wasn't good enough to survive that um, pit serving. And, you know, it had been good most of the year, but it had waffled a few times um and it, it got to him and it got to all of their people there um there's a lot of attention on uh, Golce Guchtikin because her flaws were more visible um they're big flaws you know when when it, she shanks one into the third row it you know everybody knows who did that uh, but he said she wasn't even their worst passer that night and uh and that nobody on the bench a lot of people were like why didn't they put chanel in um chanel Bromschreiber, who's one of the most spectacular people i've met in my life she's a great great person but she had uh not performed in practice to the same level that she maybe had in the past she hadn't taken the job away from gulche even when gulche was fading and sick and kind of injured at the end uh she was still outperforming chanel in practice every day is that the main thing that coaches are responsible for is figuring out who's playing as as opposed to you know mastering the game between the lines you know you know um uh, skills and and strategies is getting the right lineup as opposed to you know technical things they did a lot of lineup 
juggling this year, um, shuffling people around because they had two setters for the first time and they were trying to figure out who hits with each setter. Um, in the 6-2 alignment, the right side subs in at the same time as one of the setters. So if Izzy Ashburn was setting, she would come in with Devin Robinson. So Devin Robinson is never playing when MJ Hamill is setting. MJ comes in with Anna Smrek. Well, during throughout the season, they were kind of playing with that. And they're also each setter would get a different middle. One would get somebody for two rotations and, and the other middle for one. And, and the left sides you'd get one person would get Sarah Franklin for more rotations than uh, Eula Orzol. And uh, one would have uh, Franklin in the, as a back row attack. She, both Orzol and Franklin could back row attack, but Franklin was the more effective one back there. So trying to match up the hitters with the setters was something that played out through the year, and they kind of settled on that as time went on. So it was a little more complicated than, than in previous years. I think um, early in Kelly's years, lack of depth was kind of an issue, and there weren't many – it was pretty clear cut who was going to play and there weren't many options. If somebody was having a bad night, well, they had a bad night. Um, in the last couple, three, maybe even more years that he's really tried to strengthen. That. That's where a Jade Demps came in. And somebody having a bad night, if it's on the left or the right, Jade could come in. Um, the tricky part is how long do you stay with somebody who's maybe has a, a tough first set, misses a couple. Well, everybody misses a couple. And when do you draw the line? And, and it's like, when do you pull the starting pitcher? Um, the difference is you can always go back to the starter here too, which is generally done. Um, but that he had options to go to at various times. And that I think when you make that move is kind of a coaching challenge. Now, when you started covering volleyball for the state journal in 2013, did you understand all the nuance mm -hmm. of what you were just talking about? No, not at all. I, I kept my questions as basic as possible as to reveal as little ignorance as I could get away with. And I knew gym class volleyball and uh, bump set spike and, I didn't understand a lot how the rotations worked. I was, what's the difference? What's a DS? I didn't know what a DS was. And I, they didn't play as what I saw. Um, and I'm just, I'm trying to keep the score. I never covered a match that season until the tournament started. So I do feature. I had one day a week to cover volleyball that first year. And that didn't start until October. So we we're in the middle of the season. And so I was jumping on board in the middle and trying to learn as I went along. And what's nice about volleyball is people don't expect everyone to know everything. So if you ask an honest question, they'll talk you through it. Um, I, I also covered hockey one year and I knew even less about hockey. And it's part of when they keep cutting back staff, I had, 
one year they needed me to do hockey. I was covering men's and women's hockey, women's basketball and volleyball. And I, to talk to vol- hockey people, if you don't know what you're talking about, it's like idiot. Uh, here, I, I think they kind of in volleyball, I think they kind of expect people to not know and they're glad to talk you to, through stuff. So I, I've learned a lot and I learned a lot because I didn't know I'd hear six, two. And I said, well, you can't have eight players on the court. <laughs> and so I, I had to, it's probably not the best general title or, um, thing to call that arrangement, but it's a two setter lineup is. I spent a lot of time waiting in line to get into the field house asking kids, okay, ex- explain six, two versus five, one and what the slide and, and, and pin and, and wait, what, what about this? And it was, they were very helpful to, because I think they understand a lot of people are coming to following this, like, Oh my gosh, this is an exciting sport. And, and, we're coming in in the middle of this. We're coming in in the middle of what everybody else has already been experiencing for years, and we're trying to catch up to understand the subtlety of of strategy and and the nuance and just the basic rules. Like, wait a minute, you can't hit it from there. You have to hit it from here. And and wait a minute, how many times can they touch it? And and wait a minute, what just happened? And and I find yeah. that the the TV announcers don't always do a great job explaining why some, something just happened. I mean, you can understand some of the, the the signals that the Lions judges give when they make the touch or the or it was clear or it's down, but so, wait a minute, what just happened? And they just go on to the next point. Yeah, net violations all of a sudden. Yeah. You think somebody scored a point. Not, a lot of times I look down because I keep a running score and I, and I say, well, no, wait, I missed something. Yeah. Um, there was a net violation. And um, yeah, there, there's things any plays around the net when, when the block goes straight down, did it, which side of the net did it go down? I can't always see. And then you just look to see which side is happy. And then, you know, okay. (laughs) Um, And and, and some of the replays are like micro, you know, micro slow-mo zoom in. Did it touch the fingernail? The, yeah. yeah, the problem is the speed of the cameras is not sufficient for this game. So any touch call is you see what you want to see. If you want it to be a touch, you'll your brain will say, "Yeah, see their finger moved." But if you say there's no touch, see there's air in there. That um, it, it almost seems like it shouldn't be challengeable because they can't see it. It puts a lot of pressure on that down official who I get aggravated with all the time when they take four minutes to go through something and you just want to like, let's go. But they're trying to make an honest call on something where they aren't getting pure evidence as to what happened. I think the line calls in or out, you can, even with a fuzzy ball that kind of has an extended shape to it as it goes, you can tell either that there's, the red or black or blue or whatever the sideline is, if, if you can see that without the white line, you say, oh, okay, that was out. Um, but yeah, the replays are, they're good when, when they're, when they fix a bad call, but there's so many calls that are just unreviewable to me. 
No, they're good when they help your team. They're bad when they don't. We're talking with Dennis Punzel. His book is Point, Wisconsin, The Road to a National Title for Kelly Sheffield and the Wisconsin Badgers. Well, let's talk about Kelly Sheffield, who never played volleyball at any level. How did he get so interested in the sport that he wanted to make it his career? Yeah, it's one of those things. When I first talked to him about that, I didn't know. when He came from Muncie, Indiana, which is a big hotbed of volleyball, went to Ball State, which is one of the few colleges in the Midwest that uh, has a men's volleyball team. So I just assumed that he had played at Ball State, and that was his background because Pete Waite played at Ball State. Um, you know, that's where a lot of the male coaches around were Ball State players. And then when he said no, he never played the game, it was like, that's different. I can't imagine coaching something you've never done. Um, and but he, growing up in that environment, his uh, younger sister, Cammy, played volleyball in high school, and he would go to matches. You're around it. Um, he ended up. He had a friend from high school who wanted someone to help coaching the JV team at. at their alma mater, Burris High School, which is Ball State's laboratory school. Um, small classes, like I think his graduating class was 60 people. Um, but they were, they're like won 24 Indiana State championships um, during that time, uh, over the years. Um, but he, he started helping her out on a JV team and he knew fundamental stuff, but he, you can sort of, if you, if, if you watched a, a dad coach a little league baseball team, you don't know, have to know how to throw a slider to coach kids through a low-level thing. You just kind of organize. But I think he then really got into it. One of my favorite stories of the whole thing was his second year coaching that JV team. He coached with Craig Skinner, who was another Muncie kid, and Craig Skinner ends up at Kentucky winning a national championship in the spring of 21, and Kelly's at Wisconsin coaching the national champion that fall. And what are the odds that on, on some small school JV team that you would have two future national championship coaches, both like 20 years old, as, as the coaches? Uh, it's, it was just amazing. When he was telling me that, that was, I guess, the COVID year, and Kelly's telling me about that. Oh, that's unbelievable. And um, so he got into it, and then the uh, Munciana Club Program is one of the best club programs in the country. Uh, there's the Shondell family in Muncie that started all of this. Uh, Don Shondell, I guess Don, Dr. Dr. Don was the father. Um, Dave uh, is the coach at Purdue, is is uh, Brother John, who's Kelly's age and a lifelong buddy, they text each other all the time now, even when they're rivals, opponents heading into matches, they're always texting back and forth. Uh, Steve Shondell, who's somebody I met when I was covering men's basketball in the 80s. Um, He was the oldest brother who coached Muncie Burris and uh, started the Munciana Club. And just a great guy. And uh, he's also the biggest Badger fan 
ever. And anytime I talk to him, he wants to hear about, you know, what's Rod Ripley doing. And, you know, he wants to talk about eighties Badgers uh, basketball. Uh, but so Kelly grew up in that environment. And then he's at Monsiana, he just threw himself into learning how to, how the games played. How do you um, teach skills? He would watch practices. He watched practices of every team he could see. He would go to Ball State and watch Rick Majerus run basketball practices um, just to try and learn how to organize things. Um, I asked him once, how do you know when someone's hitting a volleyball, how do you know that their motion is right? How do you see it? Everything happens so fast. And how do you coach? No, your hand is here and you want it here. Um, and he said that was initially a challenge because he hadn't done it himself. And then he says, almost like in a flash that one day I see it now. I see when the arm is here where it's supposed to be and not here. Um, it's, you know, the hand placement. I'll watch them at practice and when the people are serving, serving practice. And he'll correct constantly. It's, it's your hand here, you know, the, the, you're too soon to this, to that. Um, it, it's, it's an amazing thing. It's, it, it's like for me when I watch golf and I see them pick apart somebody's swing and say, well, they all look good to me. I, I, and then how does that that little micro something that sends the ball 30 yards to the right instead of down the middle. And somebody can pick that, that apart. And to me, they all look the same, but that's the, the good coaches get that eye that they can spot those things, the fundamental stuff. So it started through that. And then he just really got into that, uh, that world and he just got obsessed with, learning everything he could about it. Did he ever have difficulty having players buy into his leadership because he had not played? I know if I ever had a newspaper editor who had not been a reporter, I would not have you know, entirely trusted their their instincts or their understanding. Did he have that kind of problem with athletes? I think it might have happened early on, but then the kids were younger. And so you, you kind of earn your spurs as you go along. And then once you've shown that you know what you're talking about and you're coaching young kids, even, you know, at the college level, I think they were, um, when I did the original story on him not having ever played, it was like 2014 and I, the players were, were kind of marveled about it, but they didn't question it because he'd been coaching in college and had had a track record of success. So that, they just kind of, I don't know how he does it, but he does it. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't think you start out coaching advanced people and, and earning their trust. I mean, you, you earn your way up through coaching success. From your conversations with reporters covering other programs, is there an identifiable Wisconsin way that's appreciably different from other successful programs? Um, well, you know, it's one of the weird things about this sport is that there's very few programs that get covered. Um, Nebraska, there's a reporter from Lincoln and one from Omaha, and I've gotten to know both of those guys. 
and um, we talk. And there's a Hawaii gets covered like it's football, um, but there's not much else going on in Hawaii. But they really treat volleyball as big time and have for forever. Um, but most of the places, you know, they might send someone out to a big match, um, but there really isn't a lot of permanent, you know, like beat coverage on other schools and even in the Big Ten. There's um, they the place, you know, it's, it's especially in the big city places, you know, Minneapolis, they have somebody covering it. You know, if Wisconsin comes up, there's someone will cover it, but they're not there at practice or doing a story every week and they aren't doing something when Indiana comes to town. Um, but there is back to the, the, the point of it. I think there is a, a Wisconsin way and it starts with, um, you, I'm trying to think of the perfect, perfect word. You, you kind of put your ego aside. It's, it's not a, it's not a me thing. It's a we thing. And everything is for the, the good. I've got right over here in my bookshelf. I've got a copy of the uh, championship manual that he, he created. And I had never heard of such a thing, but he, First thing he did when he took over the program uh, here in 2013, their first meeting was reading through the championship manual. And, and that's a team that hadn't been to the tournament for six years. And they're reading about how they're going to win the championship and here's how we are going to do it. And, um, and that it's a, it's a living document. It, it's updated and things are thrown in and it, it spells out what's expected of everyone it's it's how we do things it's it's your approach to your teammates um it's your approach to your job and some of it's um even down to wedding you know can you go can you leave a season to go to attend a wedding and i said well they've got a policy on that um basically uh if it's a close family, they should know not to ha schedule a wedding <laughs> volleyball season if they want you there. <laughs> not that close, well, then they'll have to get by without you because you're not that close. Uh, but there, there's all of that spelled out. And one of the elements in there is the story of Demi Morales, which comes up a lot. Um, she was the sensation of 2013. I don't know if you were, do you remember Demi? Nope. Five foot seven outside hitter who got the, who was starting at the outside hitter that year because they didn't have anybody else. And it's unheard of at, at a big 10 school to have a five foot seven outside hitter. And all of a sudden this, this little kid is, she's just flying and um, she gets the championship point against Texas the biggest upset in the, in the tournament in years that year. And she, you know, it was, it was a real, the, the story of the team. She was almost symbolic of, it, even though Lauren Carlini was the superstar of the team, it was this little squirt playing the left side um, kind of symbolized that team. The next year, Kelly Bates comes in as a freshman and she beats her out for the, that job and, and uh, 
Demi ends up as a defensive specialist playing two or three rotations in the back row, never hit. And she didn't skip a beat. I remember doing a story on her and she said, it's all there. The numbers, Kelly's better than me. So she starts and I don't. And I, and, and she was su supportive and that story is passed on like Demi Morales is a legend in that program because of how she handled transitioning to a lesser role while still being a supportive teammate. And um, you come into the program, you read about Demi Morales. Um, and she still comes back. I saw her a couple of years ago. She was coaching at camp here and we had lunch um, today at the same table with Kelly. And um, yeah, so that kind of carries on and that sort of sets a tone for there's no favoritism played. Everything is earned. And I, I think most teams will talk that way, but they really live it here. Um, and if you can't buy into that program, you, this is probably not the place for you. And, and I think it's, it, that's usually determined in recruiting. They want kids that are good teammates you got you to gotta have a certain talent level. That's obvious. But if they see someone who's a prima donna, someone who's not paying attention to their club coach during a, a timeout or, you know, not showing proper body language, they're probably not going to come here. Um, and if a kid thinks it should be all about me and then they come here and hear all of this stuff, they say, well, I don't want to. I don't want to have to fight for my job every year. Uh, they'll probably self-select themselves out too. You know, they'll, so the coaches sort of select who comes here and then the players sort of know. I know people who follow recruiting at this level sometimes worry about when they miss out on a, a kid who visited and all this. And Kelly is kind of like, you know, well, if, We'll get somebody else, and if, if she chose to go to someplace else, that's probably the right call for her. If she wanted what we had to offer, she would have picked us. And uh, it's, it's always frustrating for some of the people, I think, who really follow it because they would just want whoever's ranked number three in the country or number one in the country to come here. And as well, if they all end up at Texas and Nebraska, there's a reason they go there. And it's probably okay. Um, you can't get Lauren Carlini and Sydney Hilly every year. Correct. And, and you know, there's two kids. Lauren was number one in the country, probably the top setter since I've covered this in the, to ever come through. Um, and Sydney Hilly committed when she was a freshman in high school even she was going to follow Lauren Carlini. And so she's 13, 14 years old and she had decided where she was going. And that was the biggest, uh, probably the biggest recruit of Kelly's time here. And I write about, there's a chapter on recruiting and how they go about it. And, and he talked about getting Sydney Hilly was assigned to the volleyball world that Wisconsin is not a four and done here with Lauren Carlini. 
this program will live beyond because they just got the next setter. And, and that proved to be true. Um, they each were uh, three-time first-team All-Americans. Uh, each was a second-teamer one other year. Um, so, and, and they're the perfect person, you know, from the time while um, Sidney Hill is still in high school, anytime they, the team was bringing in a recruit for a visit here, she'd bug her mom to drive from Minneapolis area down here so that she could spend time with that recruit and help recruit her. Here, you got to come here. This is how we're going to do it. Um, so she was like a recruiter, even when she was like a junior in high school, she's bugging to get trips down to Madison to talk to and get to know kids coming in for visits. And how you, how unusual is it to have a freshman captain? Right. Well, she was, she was not a captain until her sophomore year, but only because Kelly thought she had enough on her plate. The team would have voted her captain, but he, he said, you got enough to worry about. So she, she would have been, but only that he, and the, the, I've seen that too. It's one of the amazing things the, the kids vote. There's a whole process for voting for captains and they write down why it is that they want this person to be a captain. And, uh, it's really enlightening. And I've talked to kids when they, when they see the comments from their teammates about them. I remember uh, Anna McDonald like was crying just to hear what her teammates were saying about her um, when she became a captain. In a good way, you know, crying about all the good things they were saying about her. So touched. Yeah. And that's, Anna was a kid who, or Amber, I I should say Amber. Uh, Amber was the captain. Anna's a really good kid too. I like her a lot. Um, but Amber, who played some, but not a lot, but she was a captain. Um, so that that stuff is taken very seriously. Um, this past year, it was uh, Danielle Hart and and the two setters, uh, Izzy and uh, MJ, were were the captains. And Izzy and MJ had never really played. Izzy was a server and MJ had played one match and all of a sudden there she she was the setter and sit and Hilly never missed the one miss match she missed was because of COVID and MJ was the one who was picked to start that or to play that match up at Minnesota um but they became captains because of their leadership skills and uh they exhibited that just through how they handled themselves with the team. So, and how perfect was it that the championship point was Hilly to Redkey? You know, uh, I was gonna say if I go to the book and my first chapter starts with Hilly to Redkey. That's the first line of the book, and that that hit that came to me as I'm driving home from Columbus trying to talk myself into what do I want to try and do a book or not. I really didn't want to do it. And I, it just seemed like an, uh, an undertaking. I, you have a book beat, you, you talk to people who have books out every week and, and 
to me, writing a book was like, I don't know how you do this. And I have no idea how to get one published. And I was intimidated by that whole process. And I just said, ah, I don't want to do this. But Hilita Retke kind of like, I think I just witnessed something special. There's a story here to tell between Kelly and the program that hasn't really been told in, in a comprehensive fashion. And I said, yeah, yeah. I, I talked myself into it. I said, well, getting away from your question here, but I'll expand. Um, when I first thought of doing it, because Kelly and I had talked about doing one a couple of years earlier and that did, didn't happen. And then I, after a couple of weeks after the championship, I called him and said, remember that book thing we were talking about? You know, I'm, I'm thinking of maybe trying to do one. And he said, let's go. I, I was like, I'm going to need a lot of your time. And I spent probably, a, I don't know how many hours in his office doing things. Um, the, uh, it started the first session I said, let's watch, can you watch the, the final four matches? So, and just tell me what you're thinking. If you can put yourself back. So we, the first uh, meeting, he puts the Louisville match on and I said, just, we'll go through it. We'll watch it. Tell me what you're thinking as the match goes on. Not every point, but you know, during timeouts between sets, we also talked about how you prepare for Louisville, a team you hadn't faced. Um, didn't know that much about and how you go, what was your strategies going into that match? What did you think you were going to have to do to prevail over them? But then he went through for three hours that we're watching this match and this time out, what are you telling them? Um, when do you, what, what sort of instructions are you giving Sydney um, here and there? Uh, so it was, it was enlightening for me because none of us are inside the huddle and that's, it was, yeah, I'd say enlightening to me to sort of hear what goes on in a coach's head and what players, what messages he wants to give them. And the next time we, we talked Nebraska, when that was an over three-hour match. So to sit through that, and I'm, I'm re just recording <laughs> this as he's talking, and, and again, there was the opposite. How do you prepare for a team you've already played and they, you know each other and they know you and you know them and um, what, was, what do you change? What do you stay the same at? And then how are you coaching them throughout? Um, so that was our first interviews. And then we probably had 10 other sessions. Each you know, would be several hours and just talked about all the different topics. But to go back to this um, Hilly Duretti, which was the start, my, the first chapter was championship point, breaking down everything that happened in that point and the, the uh, fake championship point right before it that actually should have won it, but, but the a bad replay call by the replay official, there was no touch but somehow he thought he saw one. And if he'd had the angle that uh, the UW video person had from behind that showed the ball clearly sailed over uh, Dana's hands, 
um, they would have won it on a, on a ball sent long by Matty Kubik. Um, but they, that was the first chapter, breaking that down, what the immediate reaction afterwards, what went through Kelly's mind as the points going on. So then I, I fast forward 15 chapters and I'm writing the last chapter of the book is the Nebraska match. And I'm kind of, as I start, I said, well, how am I going to end this when I've already written the end at the start? And I said, well, I'll figure it out. And so I just started typing and just kept going. And I'm, I have the match on my TV is just over to my left here. And I, I'm playing and stopping it. And I'm listening to, or I've got transcription from what Kelly's interview, that, that three hours we spent watching it. Um, and just kind of matching up all of that. And I'm going through set by set by set. And I'm getting into the fifth set. And I'm still not sure how I'm going to end it. And get up and take a break. And I'm just walking around the house. And it hit me. And the last two lines hit me just walking around the house. And I was just like, I wanted to get through the chapter and get to the last two lines. So <laughs> it was such a relief but it was going to come full circle and I'd end up with the title of the book as the last two words of the, the book. And it was Hilly to Red Key Point, Wisconsin. Time is a time is a flat circle. Yeah. And it, it uh, I said, ah, that's it. That was the, the best part of the whole process for me. I just wanted to jump up and down, you know, <laughs> when you're writing and something comes to you because a lot of times nothing comes to you. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and it was perfect. And I said, I talked to Sid about that and, and, and Dana's kind of self, she's selfless, a very selfless person. And they both kind of, yeah, you know, they get it. But Dana saying, you know, I wish Grace would have gotten it because Grace Loberg had two, at least two spectacular hits that, um, Nebraska's Lexi Rodriguez made unbelievable digs on to keep the play alive. It could have been uh, Hilly to, to Loberg just as easily and, and maybe should have been at that point. Um, but somehow just the, given their status, you know, like the star should make the big play. It was, you know, Bryce Harper hitting the home run for the Phillies. You know, it was Bryce Harper doing it. It, it, it wasn't Gene Segura. Um, so it was, it was, it was perfect, uh, a perfect, uh, combination. And, uh, but th those two kids need to go back to the culture, Sydney Hilly and, and Dana Rich, you just don't find two better people and, uh, that they symbolize your program. And, and I, my sense of being around volleyball now, there's a lot of those kids. Most of the kids are, I haven't met a kid here who isn't a great kid. Um, they're, they're real students. There's kids taking pre-med and uh, engineering um, majors. And it just always boggles my mind how they do this. Yulia um, Orzol coming here with English as a second language and lands here, you know, I think the day before they start practicing and 
I think they'd already started practicing. And just before school started, the week before school starts. So she doesn't know anything. She's never been to Madison, never been to the United States. And her first two semesters, she's a straight A student. She's never gotten anything but a 4.0. And I said, well, I never got one and I speak English. <laughs> That's the only language. You know, how do you do that? Um, yeah. It amazes me, and that's but that's the kind of kids you have um, across the board. When you go back and watch that fifth set or watch those championship that championship match, do you still get kind of choked up? I know I do. When I when I when I read the book, I went back and I rewatched some of that championship match, especially the fifth set, and at that I got choked up. Yeah. Um, it does because you know you watch you're watching something special, and it's dramatic, and um, you know I when I finished the last chapter, as I wrote each chapter, I would uh, usually send a copy to my wife to proofread for my typos, and I'd send one to Kelly to just fact check am I am are things accurate here. And um, I, after I finished the last chapter, I had texted him. I said, yep, I'm done. I wrote, I, I finished it. Well, and he, five minutes later, he calls me. He said, you can't, you can't just end this on a text. And so we're talking. He says, so what did you do when you, when you finished it? I said, well, I cried. <laughs> um, so I sent him the the galleys of the book before it came out and so he tells the story well because he was out recruiting in the summer and he was in columbus for a big tournament there and he's like what are the odds that he happens to be in columbus and he's reading the book about the championship he won in columbus and he's staying at the hotel right across the street from the arena where they won and he's telling me this was later uh, when he read it. He he said, that's, when he got to the last chapter, he cried too. And I think that's when you know you've kind of done something right. Because it, it there was an emotional impact. And I think fans here will carry that with them forever. That's why I'm glad I wrote the book. the words national champions yeah and there's one every year but there's only one yeah. you know um that's like a lesson from this year people were it was not the ending they wanted but it's not the ending anybody wants except for one team it's just how when it happens um some and the farther along the more heartbreaking it gets you got to think that the Louisville people on their second final four and to lose in the championship were heartbroken. Well, do they look back and say it's a great season or not? Um, Texas every year is never satisfied unless they win a national championship. They hadn't won one since 2012. Um, the year before Wisconsin knocked them off in the final four the next year. Um, so yeah, it, and it had never happened here. They'd been 
to the final four with Pete Waite, got to the championship match and lost to John Cook in Nebraska. Uh, they'd gotten there in, in 19 and got demolished by Stanford, uh, which was maybe this, the, the best non-Penn State team people had seen. I think there's Penn State teams that will always hold uh, the crown as the, the greatest teams ever put together. Mm. Um, and then the next year they lost to Texas in the semifinals. So they'd been there. They'd been on the edge of it. And you just realize that it's difficult. Winning the national championship is difficult. And it's a reminder this year that it doesn't happen automatically. And it may happen next year. It might not happen for another 10 years. Uh, who knows? I'm sure Texas, when they won in 2012, thought they were going to win it again in 2013. They had all these people back and they were loaded and they're, and this little upstart team that was a 12 seed comes in and beats them. Um, so you, you just never know. And uh, you have to cherish the ones you get. I, th I think there was a, if there was anything, there was a little pressure, on, extra pressure, maybe subliminal on that 21 team with five fifth year people back, two of the greatest players in program history who came back, those seniors all came back, the fifth years all came back to win a national title. You know, Sydney Hilly also was working for her masters and there's other things, but they came back to win the title. And so that's a pressure. There is no next year for those kids for, you know, everybody else. Well, there's always next year. And they'd always had next years when they came close and this was, they'd run out of next years. So there's a, I think the pressure that they might not have even felt at the moment that they're playing, they aren't out there on the match thinking, well, this is my last chance. But I think somewhere in your head, that's, that's going on. And, uh, and I think from fan standpoint said, well, if this team can't win it with all these people back and we've got two of the greatest players ever to wear that uniform and all sorts of other gifted players out there. Maybe Wisconsin just can't do it. Maybe this is just a Nebraska, Penn State, Texas thing and um, not meant for Wisconsin. So I think that showed that Wisconsin could do it and um, that they weren't always just going to be have to be the runner up or the close calls too bad. Yeah, Did they? Standard for everybody. After the disappointment of losing to, to Pitt, would they, would all the, the girls on the team have watched that final four or would any of them have said, it's too painful, I can't bear to watch it? You know, and I haven't talked to anybody because, you know, you break up after that and you don't see anybody again. So I haven't asked. And I, I think there's both. I think there are real volleyball nerds who, who couldn't miss it. And then there are others who, yeah, I, I, that should be us. I can't watch someone else enjoy it. I know. Oh, I know. I was at the, the, the book signing where we, where you came at the Hilldale a couple of weeks ago. Um, somebody asked uh, Lauren, I had Lauren Barnes and Grace Loberg were with me and somebody asked them, 
did you watch that match? Well, they weren't even on this team. And, uh, you know, and say, well, and would you, would you root for Pitt to win? Yeah. The team that beat you or any, and when you played, did you root for the team that beat you to win? And say, uh, usually, no, I'm mad at them for taking away what we wanted. Um, and so, yeah, you might feel better if the team beat you proved to be the champion. Um, I asked Kelly that once one, I think one of the most painful losses ever was when they lost to Stanford here in the, uh, Elite Eight, Lauren Carlini's last match. Um, and they won the first two sets and Stanford did a reverse sweep and and came back and won the last three loaded with freshmen, um, including uh, Catherine Plummer, who would be their nemesis throughout her career. Um, and I remember asking Kelly, well, does it make you feel better at all when Stanford went on and won the championship that you didn't just lose to somebody, some mediocre team, lucky team? Is that, and he said, no, that didn't help at all. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, I think, I think it, it hurts so bad, it doesn't matter who you lose to. And I think, but I, I'm sure there's half the team watched and probably half couldn't bear to watch. One thing that was different this year compared to last year about the uniforms is that the jerseys last year read Badgers on the back, and this year they had the Motion W and the players' names. What do you know about why that change was made? I don't know. I, I should ask more about because they change uniforms every year, and over the years they've changed providers, you know, companies because they switched from I think they were an Adidas team and then they became a Under Armour team um, and the players have some say in in the uniforms um, and, and I think different fans like one look over another and some I guess I don't pay that much attention I like the names on the back um, and, and they always put them so under the numbers so you can actually read them so they're not just covered by hair all the time. Um, and I, it, it's, I don't know the process for sure, but I know their players have some input on them. Um, I know they like long sleeves. There's some teams that go to the sleeveless, almost basketball jersey look. Um, people like to have sleeves. Uh, sometimes, you know, there's, there's always a, a sweater or two a high, uh, somebody who sweats a lot. Uh, Molly Haggerty was one. Taylor Morey was one. Uh, Sarah Franklin right now. Anytime there's a delay as they mop up the floor, it's Sarah Franklin is asked to be in the area because she just sweats all the time. <laughs> She'll go through three or four shirts at a practice. Um, and so it's that if you have your arms uncovered, you'll stick when you hit the floor. Um, so that's not good, but I'm not sure why they picked the jerseys they had or if they get multiple options from Under Armour and they pick the one they like or if they can sort of order which they want. I assumed it had something to do with name, image, likeness, and that there was to, Very to, well. to be able to sell the shirts with, with Robinson on the back would, would be a good thing. Yeah, which – and that – the uh, deal with the individual jerseys came through as the season was already started. 
Um, and I think it's a big bonus. And, and I don't even know exactly how many, but Robinson was one of the first ones that was available at the store. Um, so yeah, there, there's, there's a lot of things it, that very well could have had some NIL stuff related to it. You were talking about the emotion and, and almost the purity of the experience of, of these teams to go from the sublime of this to the ridiculousness. Your first sports assignment was covering the Milwaukee Brewers in the World Series season of, of 1982, featured a couple of Hall of Famers and some very boisterous personalities, uh, to say the least. Is there any job in journalism more fun than being a beat reporter for a baseball team traveling around the country in the spring and summer? Well, you know, and it, it's like, it's weird because I was, I started the year of 82. I'm a desk man <laughs> in uh, Boise, Idaho. I'm, I'm working the desk, uh, laying out pages and copy editing. And the sports editor here at the Cap Times, you know, Rob Zaleski, who I'd worked with in Green Bay briefly, my first real job. He had an opening and he called me and I said, yep, I'll be there. And I, I moved here in July of 82, started covering the Brewers. Now I didn't travel. That was my goal when I started. That was my dream job was to be a beat, a baseball beat writer. And I wanted to work for the Milwaukee Journal and be the next Mike Gonring, who was the beat writer when I was growing up and reading them and, and never met the guy, but he's the one who helped get, get me into journalism because he was so good. And I wanted that job. I just thought it would be the greatest job. I'm a baseball guy. The more I was from the cap times, we didn't travel that much that year. I traveled the last road trip to um, Boston and Baltimore. And then they off to Anaheim for the playoffs. And yeah, it's a great, it's a great beat, but it's also an exhausting beat. From Madison, we basically, we covered home games and from different years, varying amounts. The cap times, we didn't cover as many home games even as the State Journal would cover all the home games. Um, and that was good and bad. The beat writers are the ones that get to know the players and, and there's a responsibility there. You come in from out of town and you occasionally cover games. The players don't ever know who you are. Um, you don't build a relationship I, that you get when you're every day on the beat. Um, in the end, I kind of liked what I had because you kind of go in and go out and you, you, you're around it. You get to write some stories, you know, to cover the, it's still the only World Series that the Brewers have ever been in. And I, who knows when the next one will ever be, given the way things are going in baseball with salaries and whatnot. Uh, so that's something I'll always carry with me. And there, I think of the, the great players that were on that team and the, uh, yeah, Hall of Famers. I think there are five Hall of Famers on that team. Um, Molitor, Yount, um, Don Sutton, Raleigh Fingers, Ted Simmons. Um, and 
you know, when I started, Ted Simmons wasn't talking to anybody. Um, there were some scruffy, antagonistic people. Pete Vukovic was just antagonistic to people. Gorman Thomas depended on his mood. Uh, Cecil Cooper usually didn't talk to people. Um, Robin Yount would talk, but he wouldn't ever say anything. Um, he was a reluctant, uncomfortable interviewee. Paul Molitor was great. He was one of the greatest interviews ever. Well, that was the cocaine speaking. That's what that was. Yeah, he's one of my all-time favorites because he just, you wouldn't have to, if you just introduced the subject, he would go on and, and give you an answer. And he was always a willing participant. And I, I yeah, there was, that was a different era, but I also, I think he got through that and uh, became a, he grew, he grew. Yeah, probably my favorite of all of those. You were roughly their contemporary. You were a couple of years older than Mulder and Yount, a couple of years younger than than Gorman Thomas and Cecil Cooper. We are almost old enough to be the Badger volleyball players' grandfathers. Do you have, has that changed or affected your perception of the athleticism and and the sport you're covering to go from being a contemporary to being someone looking at someone of a different age group. Pretty amazing when you think, and I go back, I think about it. I, I, at the same time I was covering the Brewers, I covered UW men's basketball in the uh, Steve Yoder years. I I covered his 10 years as coach, never went to a tournament. I tell people that now that you'd cover Wisconsin basketball and never cover a tournament game for 10 years. It's like unbelievable. That shows where that program has come. Um, but I'm thinking, yeah, I, I was late twenties when I started on that 27 or eight, I was 28 when I started covering them and these kids were 20. I said, yeah, I kind of related to them. I, I felt like them. I, I remembered college. And yeah, and then I come back years later and I'm, I relate more to the parents. I found, I got to know parents of almost every volleyball player from uh, the Carlinis um, right on through the Haggerty's, you know, the, the Hillies, the Lobergs, you know, it's, it's, that's been part of my fun. I almost find myself, I would go down before matches and, and go talk with moms and dads. And uh, not, then then pretty soon you realize, well, I'm older than the parents now. And yeah, and I had to get an early start, but yeah, in, in the grandparent, grandparent parent age. Um, and I, I don't know, I, what I don't want to be is a, an old poop who, talk to these kids. And I think they all appreciate that. I don't think they look at me that way. I think there's a good relationship. It's different. It's, it's different looking at, at kids so young. I'm just amazed at them. It's interesting. You know, I always think of it's like being a teacher, it, like, especially if you're an elementary teacher or whatever, the, the kids' names change, but they never get older. Um, they just every year you get a new group of kids the same age. And while I have the same group of 
volleyballers and they never get older, but their names change every year. And, um, and yet they're all, I get to know them at a better level. I'm one of the few people who actually gets to cover practice um, at, at a UW sport. You know, football is closed, basketball is closed practices. In uh, 2019, I, I sat through the film sessions most days at, before practice. I, I had just come sit in the back. That was part of the book that we were sort of kicking around at that time. And that was enlightening. That's how I learned volleyball. A lot of it was sitting there listening to how they break down film. And it, it, the, there was no book that ever came out of that experience, but it, it taught me a lot of things about what they're looking for and what they teach and what players are seeing. Um, but I get to know all these kids. Um, and, and it's, it's, Maybe they look at me as a grandparent type. Um, and yet I feel like I get a pretty good relationship with a lot of them, especially if they're around for, as they get on through several years. And like a Danielle Hart, who was here for six years, you really get to know her. I got to know her dad really well. Um, her, her grandma would come here a lot and I'd talk to her and going to cover, I think, senior night, and I'm getting a hug from grandma. Um, so yeah, you build a bond with kids and, and yet I'm not on the team. I'm not responsible for anything. You know, I, I know where the line is. There's a line between me and them. I'm, I'm not part of the team, but they know me. They know I'm around. Um, I've had, you know, you, you get to a certain age, you have some health things and I missed a week this year with, with something and, and, uh, come back to practice well players all came up to press row and say how you doing welcome back glad to see you this every one of them came up to and I said well that doesn't happen in any other sport um so that's that's one of the beauties late in life I fell into the best job I ever had the glory of the college life where as a professor or staff member or, or somebody covering it, you just see this constant re replenishment of they're always 18 to 21 to 22. And, and you just see these and you see them grow up and you see someone come in as an adolescent and leave as an adult. Yeah, it's the beauty of it. And and then in my case, you get to see some of them afterwards. Uh, Lauren Carlini was at practice. I was in 21. Um, she just stopped in one day, was heading, got back from Italy or was going or wherever she was and, uh, was going out to the national team, but she was there. Well, you know, you see her and it's a big hug and how you doing for the book. I talked to a lot of players from those early years and there's a relationship built and it's a lot of, hi, how you doing? What, what's going on? How's mom and dad? Um, and, and it's fun. I, I think Courtney Thomas was a really good player that first year I covered them. She never liked being interviewed. She was reluctant. I, you know, you'd, they'd have these, back then it was media access day where you could talk to somebody and you'd have Diane, the sports info person would, who do you want to talk to? 
and I'd give Courtney Thomas, I'd tell her Courtney Thomas, and I'd see her, Diane would go around and she'd talk to Courtney Dennis once. And I could see Courtney's head just, uh, I, I just knew when she'd come up. And I, I, I was persistent. I worked her because she was insightful, even if she was reluctant. Um, she would tell me things that were interesting. And so I kept, well, now I see Courtney Thomas and it's always a, a hug and how are you doing? And how are the, you know, she's coaching high school now in uh, Quincy, Illinois. She's got a, at least one kid. Um, I, she came up behind me. I was covering a, a match in Nebraska and all of a sudden I got a tap on the shoulder and there's Courtney and uh, big hug. How are you? What's you doing? You know, it's just, She's, I think I won her over. It took a couple of years, but she found out that it's not a bad thing to share your insights and tell your, talk to your fans. That's, that's my job is to connect them with the people who are sitting in the stands. So you don't have to go up and walk around the state <laughs> field house and tell everybody what you're thinking. Tell everybody your life story. I get to do that. Barry Alvarez asked uh, Kelly Sheffield something interesting during the job interview about the difference between coaching women and coaching men. How perceptive was Kelly Sheffield's answer? You know, I, I think he gets it. Um, and I, you know, and, and that's the part that stuck with Barry. What And, uh, and it was about if you criticize a foot, uh, like a football player, they're all going to think that you're talking about somebody else on the team that messed up. And if you do, if you say the same thing to a group of women, they're all going to think that you're talking to them, that, that it was their fault individually. And I think that's one of the differences, you know, I, it, it can sometimes be tricky when you're trying to say that it's, different covering men versus women, except it really is different. And I'll tell, I tell everyone, and I covered men's sports all my life as a follower, or I'm not really a fan, but I follow things. I watch a lot of stuff. I watch men's sports all the time. I'm, I'm a baseball nerd. I can watch anybody play baseball. Um, but I'll cover women's sports any day i would i'd much rather deal with women athletes i think they're more more perceptive they're more open to talking about their feelings or I, I don't know what it is they're just some of it i think guys have been covered all their lives and and they almost feel, feel adversarial about an interview plus if you're covering a, a football or a men's basketball team you're always in a gaggle of people trying to talk to somebody where I want to talk to somebody they sit down next to me and we talk and that's how you, you it's one-on-one -on -one in everything other than post-game press conferences um, so you get a different comfort level around people um, and it started when I covered women's basketball starting in about 2008 I started UW women's basketball and they were not very good. They were, they had seasons when they approached mediocrity. Um, but the kids were great. I, I and I, I, that was enlightening to me. I'm covering up 
a medium decent team and the players are great their parents loved everything that was written you know they 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 grabbed onto stuff because they hadn't been covered that same way all their lives i don't and they weren't think they were didn't think they were spoiled that's where i even more so than volleyball you're instead of a handshake you got a hug from these people and it's it's that was the standard greeting and it's like whoa it took me a while to get used to that but some of the best people i knew started then and uh and tara steinbauer and Alyssa carroll and lynn uh, yeah there's just a lot of great players and, and great people and parents so somehow I've, I've i've made a full switch i wouldn't trade uh the volleyball beat for anything i i wouldn't cover men's basketball or football i, I no way the other great thing about volleyball in addition to it being the single most exciting sport because every point counts and and like every point is is interesting and exciting is that the athleticism of the action and the intensity of the reaction makes the sports photography of volleyball just outstanding and this book is so lavishly illustrated with just tons of great photographs did did you farm that out to to the designer or were you i was was, uh, kind of a go-between um i was helping to collect some of these the publisher who let me interrupt quickly with a quick story on the publisher um that was my biggest concern about this whole process because I had no idea how you get a publisher. And I was sort of hoping, and I would talk to Kelly, like anybody at the UW, do they, they have a connection where they just call and we got this book published? And it didn't seem to think there was any of that. So I, I had talked to some people, Tom Hodricourt from the, covered the Brewers for years, uh, had done a couple books with this company, KCI Sports in uh, Stevens Point and he gave me the guy's email um, Peter Clark and I had his email and his phone number and I said okay that seems like a logical one and, and he'd also done some UW books too a Barry Alvarez book and uh, a couple others so there was a connection uh, but I was hesitant to contact because if he said no I had no idea where I would go next so as long as I didn't have no for an answer, I thought there was a chance. And then I'm I'm writing. I'm probably on chapter two or three, and I said, ah, you know, I gotta I gotta find out. So I send an email off to the guy, and I'm hoping to hear something in a week or two. Five minutes later, I get the email back saying, ah, I'd be very interested in this. Uh, we should talk. And five minutes later, we're on the phone. And we're talking, and he's he followed the volleyball program. He he had done a, a volleyball book that had been sold here. It was a, not based here. It was on an Iowa high school team. But um, he had connection there, and we're talking. And he mentioned a name of a friend of his in Stevens Point, and I, I had worked there for five years. I said, well, I remember, I remember Phil Heaton, he played basketball at Spash. And I said, yeah, I remember he has a, a point guard and Tom Clark was the other guard. And, and the, Peter said, well, Tom's my brother. 
And, and he said, well, and he had a scrapbook of stories that his mom had kept of stories that I had written about his brother in 1970 something. And well, he knew who I was. I didn't think he did. I, and how would anybody know? It was ages ago, a lifetime ago that I was in point. Well, and it's, some of his best buddies played on a little league team I coached. And I'm just like, you know, how does this happen? You know, he's going to publish this book and it's, <laughs> he, he's going to want it. He's going to do it with enthusiasm. And it's, it, it was a great experience. The part I was most worried about um, turned out to be great. And I, I drifted from the question and I'm trying to get my 69 year old brain to go no, back. That, to that, that was a fine answer. It was, it was, it was just about how, how great volleyball photographs are and, and how oh, lavishly oh. illustrated this book is. Yeah. And, and so Peter had, they had contracts with uh, AP and with Getty images. So they had all of those photos from the final four, at their disposal. Then I went through coaches that um, Brittany Dildine, the associate head coach had helped. She gave me a thumb drive of photos that they had, um, some behind the scenes stuff. And I, I passed those on. Uh, Peter's uh, sister lives in Stoughton. And I had a photo that uh, Kelly Sheffield's sister, Cammie had sent to me of that freshman team from Burris with Kelly and uh, Craig Skinner. And I had a, like a hard a print copy of that, that I, she mailed to me and then I had to get it up to point while I met the publisher's sister uh, at a, in McFarland and gave her cause she was on her way to point to go visit. Um, so I, I didn't pick the photos. And I, there's a few I wished had gotten in, some of the less action-oriented, um, behind-the-scenes stuff, I thought. But by and large, yeah, it's, it's, it's great. Um, I wrote a lot of the cut lines. I didn't write one. The, I didn't write the one that left Jocelyn Boyer's name out. And just, I, I, I apologize to Jocelyn and... The, the back photo doesn't have her name on it, but uh, she knows she's there. She knows she was on the team, but I feel bad. And that just was a transcription error, I guess, when they put the names on there. But um, yeah, it, it's a visual sport. It's a visual sport. And it's in, in, at the field house. It's close up. If, if you're a kid, you come down and you slap hands with the players before they play. You feel like you get to know. I think season ticket holders feel like they know these kids. Um, you see them. They're, they're not, they're not wearing much. They don't, there's no mess. It's not hockey. It's not football. You know, it, hockey at Laban, you know, you're, you're close too, but all the players are covered up. Um, here you, you watch a kid, you feel like you see their emotion. You see Golce Guchikin jump into Izzy Ashburn's arms every time she gets a, an ace. Um, you see their emotions after every point. Um, where I get the beauty of my job is I get to fill in the blanks uh, that you don't see. I get to tell their, the rest of their stories. But I think there's a there's a connection because you're that close to them, 
and their humanity is right in front of everybody to be seen. And, you know, basketball has some of that too, um, but not to the same degree, I don't think. I don't, there, and there's another thing, and it's just on a tangent that I like about volleyball, even compar compared to basketball. You watch basketball and the, the coach is always stomping up and down the court, yelling at refs and, and players are complaining about every call. I think volleyball is, a, 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 I think, a more polite sport. Um, you aren't hitting each, the other team. You aren't, you aren't in physical contact, so there isn't that element that there is in basketball. But coaches, you know, they're on the sideline, and they'll question a call. What did you see? But it just seems like it, it's more sportsmanlike. It feels that way. Um, I don't think the team hates the other team. Um, there's, you know, there's some trash talk that goes on. Uh, you'll hear about that from time to time, especially along the net. Um, but by and large, it, it's it's kind of like how sports are supposed to be. It, there, there's so much sportsmanship that if your hair even touches the net, you lose a point. Oh, no, the hair you get away with. Oh, the hair you get away with. Okay. It's, yeah. But if, you're, that, if your well, uniform touches, touches yeah. the... Yeah, the hair, and that's um, Devin Robinson has the hair that uh, flies into the net, and that was in the championship match at, against Nebraska. They called it a, a net violation, and then on the on the review, they saw it was just her hair, and so that they got a point back on that one, um, and that that came up I think, twice this year. I think it was both times it was Devin, um, but anytime you see the net move, you're thinking that it was, and that that's one one of those times when the, the video review is actually is helpful and, and definitive. I think net violations, good or bad, um, video review is helpful because you, you can see, oh yeah, there it is. Or no, there it wasn't. Um, it's more clear cut than most of the other things that get reviewed. Well, as to stylishness, you mentioned Brittany Dildine who is, um, not just a very good coach. She was the associate head coach. She, she was the assistant head coach of the year last two years ago. Now she's the associate head coach, but she's a very stylish one as well. What is the deal with those Louboutin stiletto heels she wears? I don't know how she can do it. You know, she'll uh, she'll be dressed one way for uh, pregame. You know, when when she's hitting balls at players, um, she's in warm up. And then she'll come out and she'll be dressed up really well. Um, yeah, she's she's a classy lady. Yeah, she's wonderful. Yeah, I think the world of her too. Well, but it, yeah, I don't know how she does it. Um, I don't know how anybody. I don't. I don't know how women in the world do that and why they. How we got to that place in our world where that's what women feel like they have to do because I can't imagine what it must be like well she she must she must enjoy it because she yeah. uh she does it um and she as i say well. she she was the assistant head coach of the year uh dennis this, this was this was a, a wonderful book I, I i think i know that you're glad you did get around to writing it and i and i know that the program appreciates the fact that it's been put between covers and and has been memorialized for future generations well the last interview session I had with Kelly 
we're sitting in his office and I said, well, I think we're done. And we probably talked for another hour and just okay. was asking him about the process. What did you like the best and what, what this and that and the other thing. And, and he said, he pointed, he has a bookshelf over there and he says, you know, the part that'll be the, you'll like the best is you'll be in people's bookshelves yeah. for years, for long after you're gone, you'll be in their bookshelves. And I, and I hadn't thought about it and I like it. And I've had some players who've told me, yeah, I think, I think players all have a copy. I don't know if, how many of them have read it. Uh, I don't, I try not to ask cause it seems like you're fishing. I don't, I don't like to fish for compliments. I always, when someone says they read it, I was like, well, what, what jumped out at you? What sticks with you? And I'd ask you, look, Stu, you just read it. What, what, what do you carry out of it? What did you not know? What's the biggest insight you gained? I, that's what I, that's a curiosity that I have as a writer. What do people take away from something you did? The role, the mindfulness, the DISC, the, the championship manual stuff, all, all the mind work that Sheffield plays um, with the team, especially, um, you know, the, there's the game between the lines and then there's the game between the ears and, and the ability to use mindfulness. And I even did that DISC thing. I, I took the test myself to see. And the fact that these players would learn the D I think it was Sydney Hill. It was, it was, it was it Hilly? Yeah, they, call it, they call it the disc. Yeah. Sydney memorized everybody's disc profile. Yeah. So you know how to talk to people in a way that's most effective. So, and, and it's funny because they'll all, if you just get any conversation with about a kid, one of the players they'll say, well, what are you? Well, I'm a high I and, uh, and then a C or whatever. Um, I, I, I took the test. I, I was the highest S in the group. Uh, Madison Duello was also an S and I believe M, Emmy Dodge were high S's, but there's a lot of D's. Um, but that's how they talk. So are, are you a D or, are, you know, and you're, you're all, you're part of all of them to some degree, but I was a very low D and a high S yeah, so and that, that's part of your identity. It's like telling, you know, how tall you are. Yeah. So I, I found that to be very interesting. I mean, I mean the, the narrative of how, you know, that long strange trip from Muncie to Monroe street, you know, that was okay. That's, that's real. But you know, why Kelly is why Kelly's teams are the way they are and, and the mindfulness and, and, and a part of that is the broader Wisconsin culture. The fact that the university of Wisconsin athletic department has a mindfulness director and, and somebody who's dealing with that level of, you know, interior aspect of, of the game um, yeah. is very interesting. Yeah. Well, not to, not to stretch it too far, but that was, when I, when I decided to do the book, I didn't want to just take my stories from the year and kind of tweak them a little bit and have somebody throw some photos with it and call it a book. I wanted to tell the whole story. And that was Kelly's story. And it was the building and creating of a program. And that was the, the chapter that I bring in all of that auxiliary stuff, the mental side. That's one that I really wanted to have in there that I don't think necessarily the publisher at first thought that was uh, as vital that. And I also wanted to do a chapter on the two assistant coaches um, because I thought they were vital to it. But 
I wanted to wrap it all in to make it a, a comprehensive story. And I think that was, yeah, the, the whole mental side of the game that Kelly's really into that and very uh, observant about it. And that maybe what makes him good is that he has a understanding of humans and young, young female humans. And that's that um, Courtney Thomas told me she's, a woman coaching high school girls and says, Kelly understands women better than I do. And I'm one of them, you know, and it's, he doesn't know how did, how does he do that? How did he ever do that? She marvels at it. And, and the fact that it had real life impact on the games, I think it was Grace Loberg. Uh, there's an anecdote about Grace Loberg who is about to fall apart because something's gone wrong. And, and she focuses on the mindfulness that Kelly has taught and, she goes on and does the, what she needs to do. Right. And that's, yeah, that was, she was the perfect example. And, and I think a little reluctant, um, Lauren Barnes was another little kind of reluctant uh, mindfulness person, but found ways to channel her energy in a, in a constructive way instead of an angry way. Um, yeah. There, it's real life consequences. And uh, Chad McGahee, the, the guy who's the mindfulness coach, is a, a great guy and uh, very helpful. I've sat through and watched, you know, I've been in when they do the mindfulness training. I've been, so it's, it's interesting. Um, and he comes by and it's individual. He just conversations with them. They have, I'd see Sydney Hilly wipe her hands, uh, you know, on the side of her uh, shorts. And that was kind of her, her little calming mechanism. And once I knew that, I, anytime I saw her do that, I thought, like, oh, that's interesting. But you just develop a routine. So yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting that that stuck with you or jumped out at you. Yeah. I, I feel good about putting it in. Yeah, well, the, the whole book is successful, and uh, I'm glad you stuck with it and wrote it, and, and I just can't wait till next season now. Yeah, and, you know, before long, then there may be some new people joining the program, and everyone will be even more excited. Um, yeah, it, it's and everybody's coming back, and there may be some new people stepping in to big roles coming up. Well, I guess we're they're losing Jade Demps, but, but other than, than Jade... And Daniel Hart, who's well, yeah, I mean, but in terms of through the transfer portal, Jade's the only one losing Danielle and Izzy. I've asked, and she's everybody else is coming back, and people wondered about whether anyone else would go. But uh, do, do you know why she's leaving? I don't, I think it's probably a full time playing opportunity. Yeah. I think she did her role really, really well. Um, and offered that you everybody needs everybody every team needs depth but most individuals don't want to be the person who provides the depth um even when you and, and i'd say jade bought into the team concept and she did her role and she was supportive and and then you hit a point you know, i got two more years to play I'm, maybe i find a place where i can actually play all the time and i don't think that was going to happen here um, and she may have 
come to that conclusion that her, her role would be the same going forward. And it's a great role to have. Um, but you get you only get to live once, you know, and you get to play volleyball once in college. And so everybody loves her. She's a great kid too. Um, and I think people understand it. It's not a, I'm out of here stomping my feet. It's, um, yeah, I get, I get it. She probably understands why she doesn't play, but, um, she, and she also worked harder as her career went on. And I think she really worked on her blocking. It's that's her, her weakness is blocking. And I saw her working on it more this past year than ever before. That tells me she gets it and she wants to be better at it. And she probably will. And I, she'll probably be a really good player for somebody. And I, I think they Badger fans probably hope she doesn't go to a big 10 school. <laughs> then you'd, you'd hate, they'd hate to have to root against her. I think she feels like family to people. I think all these kids feel like family and it, it, it's hard when someone leaves the family, but uh, she'll probably uh, come out all right. It's a great family story that goes uh, a couple of generations, and Dennis Punzel has written it exceptionally well in Point, Wisconsin, the road to a national title for Kelly Sheffield and the Wisconsin Badgers. I'll be back next week with a show very appropriate for the new year, a conversation with another Madison native, musician Michael Massey, about his memoir of alcoholism and recovery. It's called More. Until then, on behalf of News and Public Affairs Director Shelley Pittman, Engineer Andrew Thomas, and all of us here at Madison Bookbeat, I'm Stu Levitan. Thank you for joining us. Now, as Ben Sidron plays us out with a little bit of Little Sherry, please stay tuned for Alex Wilding White and All Around Jazz. You're listening to WORT, 89.9 FM, Madison. Listener-sponsored, Community Radio.